0: The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, brought to you by Narcanon Suncoast.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. This is Joni Siegel, and with me in the studio today is my co-host...
2: Jason Good.
1: Yay, Jason's here.
2: A round of applause. Thank you. you.
1: And this is episode number 126.
2: Awesome. You know, this time of year always gets me thinking about when I started my addiction because we're in the time of year where people are either going back to school are starting college or are going back for yet another year of whatever they're studying. And it's interesting because I was the kid that did well in high school, went to college and things got derailed. And I think about people every, every year at this time who are going to go to college and embark on that journey to find themselves in this world, find their calling, their purpose, get an education, whatever, and also get that quote unquote college experience. And there's this, I think there's an odd agreement among a lot of college kids that the college experience is pretty much, you know, drinking as much as humanly possible before you throw up all over somebody or, and you consume as much drugs as humanly possible, um, to the, to the point where you don't, you know, remember how you got home the night before and, to me, that's not really the college experience. You know, you're supposed to be going to college and learning something, maybe learning how to be, uh, you know, learn how to be an adult. You mean college isn't just for party? It's not just the party. It's not just for party? Unfortunately, no. And th- that's I think that that's the misconception.
1: I think a lot of kids, a lot of kids have, a, have a misunderstood on that.
2: And for me, I didn't even go into college thinking, oh my God, this is going to be great. This is going to be a party. I'll tell you exactly what happened. My parents brought me down to college. I moved into my dorm. They said, we love you. Have fun you know, make something of yourself. And as soon as they left, a little voice in my head went, I'm free. There's no one watching me. There's no one holding me accountable for my actions or my decisions. Within three hours, I've been offered five different drugs. Wow. I'm not even kidding. It was insanity. And then, you know, I kind of dabbled in and out my first year. The second year of college went fine. My third year, I found myself completely addicted to cocaine. And it's like, College becomes a place where people can make some really bad, but seriously life-altering decisions. So, right. like I was, like I started off saying, you know, I think about people this time of year who are going to go to college and make those bad choices and make those decisions that it that it, that they don't realize are going to completely impact the rest of their lives. Yeah, and so.
1: And that right. might be a good conversation for if we have parents who listen to have with their kids before they head off to
2: college. Right, and the, exactly. And the Just other saying. thing is it's very important for families to notice the specific indicators of drug addiction happening in their loved one who's at college because they're not in their house, they're not in your, the family home anymore. They're not under the microscope. But there are specific indicators to look out for that your college kid might be addicted, like their grades are failing, they aren't calling home as much, there's many crisis situations that, mom, you need to send money right away. Um, they're more withdrawn, they're not you know, communicating with you or telling you what's going on. There's money missing and can't be accounted for. They go out of communication to the point where you have the kid that called home every day now calls home maybe once every two weeks. Right. Um, being secretive, elusive, not coming home on time. For, for breaks and stuff like that because I did that. Um, and there's lots of things to look out for, but I really want families to be very, very vigilant and watch out for their college kid that may, you know, get themselves in a situation where they may, might make a bad choice. Now's the time to educate them and to also establish a really like safe communication line where it's like, you can tell us anything and we'll help you no right. matter what. And right. so it's that back to school time.
1: It's a kind of a different uh, back to school preparation than I usually think of, which is more like buying new clothes and school supplies.
2: Yeah, exactly. Because a lot of people are doing that, too. And unfortunately, there's a lot of addicts out there who have kids who don't get the new backpacks and the new markers and pencils and stuff like that. And have to go without because of their parents' bad choices. See, addiction hits every aspect of this. Right. In every aspect of life.
1: And that's actually, you know, what you just said right there, that's actually very relevant to the interview that we have today. Mm-hmm. Um, her name is Kim Mathis. And um, she was born addicted. You know, we've talked a lot. You know, it's interesting. We talk, we've talk. we talked a lot, or not a lot, but we've talked about babies being born addicted to drugs. Mm-hmm. And here's someone who was And grew up to tell us about it.
2: All right.
1: So today we have an interview with Kim Mathis. Kim is the wife of a former defensive end for the NFL, Kevin Mathis. And Kim is also the author of the book, Dope Girl, A Story of Addiction, A Mother's Struggle and the Baby Girl She Left Behind. Despite being a poised college educated woman who was enjoying the luxuries of the NFL life, comprised of living in a two story estate, driving luxury cars, and frequent shopping sprees, the egregious secret of Kim's mom being a lifelong drug addict who was living on the streets was a truth never to be revealed. Growing up, Kim was the recipient of painful scorn from both kids and teenagers as they mocked her mom's absence and her dad's overprotective parenting style due to their insensitivity of his attempts to shield her from her mom's dreadful state and any unfamiliar surroundings. As with most secrets, Rose's lifestyle of doping and crime was bound to eternal repression until now. Kim was a victim of her addiction and and was born into this world a dope girl. In her new book entitled Dope Girl, she candidly shares painful details of being born a drug dependent infant to a mother with a tumultuous addiction to heroin and cocaine. In her book, she relives the moments of growing up with a drug addict and gives riveting and emotionally charged firsthand eyewitness accounts to the perils of addiction, including jaw-dropping details of seeing her mother get high as a young child, as well as watching the life of crime she led to support her deadly happen. Kim has her own tax-preparing business called The Tax Lady. She also serves as vice president of the Kevin Mathis Foundation, a nonprofit charity founded in 2004 that focuses on youth empowerment, building stronger communities, and providing support for families affected by drug addiction. Without further ado, let's talk to Kim Mathis. So let's get Kim on the phone. Okay. So Kim, thank you so much for being willing to share your story with our listeners today.
0: Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited.
1: Well, I it was interesting. I was talking to my husband who's our producer. I was talking about, you know, how I would start the interview with you because, you know, typically when a lot of our interviews are with someone who was a former addict. And so my the way I started is I say, tell me how you got started on drugs. And then if we, you know, if we're talking to someone in law enforcement, you know, I might even still say, how did you get started in this area? But you are, you got started when you were born. Exactly. So start there. Yes. So I was
0: born a drug-dependent infant to a mother with a tumultuous addiction to both heroin and cocaine. And so um, I took my first breath, you know, as a drug-dependent infant. And I wish it were as simple, you know, as being administered weaning medications in the hospital's nursery to fight off the perils of withdrawal from the drugs that I had digested for the last nine months And then maybe after about a week, I was released to my family in perfect health to live out the rest of my days, you know, in childish innocence and drug-free. But unfortunately, that's not what happened. I spent the entirety of my young and adult life in emotional rehab, trying very hard to recover from drugs that I never personally digested into my own body, drugs that I never desired, bought, injected, smoked, or that I ever even gave me a high. But yet... I resided in a constant stupor because of someone else's addiction. Wow.
1: You know, it, it, the, I think your story is so powerful because, as I was saying to Jason, you know, we we know that babies are born addicted, but you are the first person we've talked to who you were one of those babies.
0: Yes, yes. So people think that oh you know the baby was born addicted will um go through the withdrawal symptoms the baby will be able to recover and they'll go about their lives and they'll be happy and healthy and everything will be fine but that's not really the case at all i mean there are proven facts that there are psychological uh, and emotional problems and that are highly likely And with that being said, there's a lot of emotional weight that you carry around, um, the burden of it, the shame that comes with it. And for me, a lot of anger and resentment that started to multiply as I couldn't really understand why she was this way, why nobody was helping, and why was I carrying all the psychological manifestations of I need to stop living like this, things that she should have been considering herself,
1: but yet I was carrying all of those manifestations. Right. So, you know, so often the scenario that we talk about here is the parent who has the son or daughter who's addicted, and here you are, a young child who's Parent is addicted. I I can't even I I can't even begin to imagine what's that what that's like. So tell us what it was like. Well,
0: it was really tough because here you are in a situation where a parent who a mother gives life, right? right? And here I was a child watching the person who gave me life literally take her own, and so I suffered with so much. So many feelings of neglect and abandonment because I felt like she cared more about the drug than she cared about me. And that was a very, very heavy load to bear because she would always seem to neglect her parental responsibility to me. And not once did I see her try to stop me from being in harm's way and use, you know, her um, common sense to, you know, protect me from what the harshness of being in a relationship with her was like. But in fact, she exposed me to them and exposed me to them hands-on. So here I was, this child, whose only healthy images of my mom were seeing her behind bars with matching handcuffs in a white inmate uniform because her addiction led her to that place. So there was no celebration of birthdays, Christmases, and holidays. There were no you know, flowers and cards to give because what I knew of her was really like a ghost parading around in her body. I didn't have a real relationship with her. I only had a relationship with a person that she
1: actually was not. Right. Were you the youngest sibling? Were you the youngest? I am the youngest sibling. So my mother had
0: two children. Um, My sister is eight years older than me. And um, we actually have different fathers, which goes to, speaks to our upbringing and how they were so different. But my mom was a teenage mother who had my sister at 15. And she had me at 22, just about to turn um, 23. and. Part of me wants to explore, understand that what led her to start drugs at such a young age. Was being a teenage mother something that was too heavy for her to bear? And maybe the pressures of that led her to um, delve into drugs as a coping mechanism. And I can see how for someone in her situation in the 1970s, being a teenage mom was a heavy load you know, to bear, right. so I often wonder, was her addiction something that um was recreational that got out of hand, or if her addiction was triggered by the heaviness of her circumstances,
1: right, uh, and were you ever able to have that conversation with her um I did not, I don't have a definitive
0: answer as to why my mom started to use drugs. Okay. I think it was a combination of the two, um, and that she suffered some trauma early on as a child herself. Because she was, uh, unfortunately, trying to support her addiction through prostitution and theft, I assume that part of her trauma was probably sexual in nature um, that led her down that path at such a young age because, again, she was a teenage mom at 15, and um, by the time I was born at 22, she was a full-blown addict. Right. Is your mom still alive, Kim? Well, actually, that's something that um, I would allow the readers to um, dissect for themselves in my new book entitled "Dope Girl.
1: Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Now, oftentimes when, when uh, there, it seems like we go two ways with our behavior as regards our parents. We either want to do the same things that our parents do, or we want to go the complete opposite. I, I happened to catch um, a horrific story recently about a young woman shooting up heroin with her dad. And I I just can't, I can't even fathom that. But did you, did you ever have any interest in trying it? Or was it such that you went, no, I'm never going down that road? Oh, absolutely not. I never
0: had any um, interest in trying it because for one, everything that I saw my mom do was Basically, telling me what not to do. Right. You know, it was, um, and a lot of my educational and professional success, um, her addiction was the driving force behind that because it left me feeling empty, you know, completely abandoned, unimportant, and I was passionately determined to be something different. So I never ever wanted to, um, dive into drugs because what I realized her behavior was telling me was that those were the result of her choices. And because we have the power of choice, I refuse to make the same choice that would lead me down ceaseless dead ends in which she found herself running into, whether it was jail or sleeping in an alley or, you know, I walked past my mom coming home from school as a homeless addict who was living under a bridge. Wow. So being a child who saw this and knew this from, you know, firsthand eyewitness accounts, I refused to be anything like her, and I was hell-bent on breaking the cycle of addiction. Wow.
2: Uh, Absolutely. And I have a question, you know, what was it like growing up with an addicted parent? Because right now, you have a lot of parents that have their kids growing up who, the kids are addicts. What was it like with the role kind of reversed, so to speak?
0: Well... With the roles reversed, I'll tell you one of the things that was really hard um, to deal with was um, just the the psychological um, emptiness. Um, You did not have anyone to go to, especially for young girls. Let me back up. So, especially for young girls. So, young girls depend on their moms for just about everything. They are responsible for who we are and who we become, for the impact that we have on society. And we typically find ourselves modeling ourselves after our moms and boys usually after their dads in in most cases. They're our first heroes. They're who we know best. They're our very first examples. But what I was able to see, you know, was everything that I didn't want to be. So growing up with an addict, I was constantly in what I would call a verbal war, because I was raised in North Dallas Project and in another very impoverished environment, um, sector of Dallas called um, Pleasant Grove. What I had to do was learn how to fight. And my fight, came with my mouth because growing up with an addict I was constantly in a verbal war defending the indefensible and trying to protect myself from her dreadful state so kids would attack me for her absenteeism kids would attack me for her appearance and would make jokes at me so I learned to fight with my mouth and my mouth became my weapon and I'm not going to say I'm it's You know proud of it because there were vulgar very vulgar explicit exchanges that we would have with each other but as a kid growing up in the project i didn't necessarily have to fight with my hands because my mouth paid dividends because kids would get into argument with me not knowing all the ammunition and resentment and frustration and anger that i was harboring harboring and as a result, I would ultimately win those verbal battles because they couldn't go toe to toe with me because they didn't necessarily have some of the same adversity that I have. Though we were living in a impoverished environment, that's probably where most of their adversity came from was maybe the lack of a father in the home or financial adversity. But not many of them were in my situation where you were literally dealing with addiction and dealing with it from the Parenting standpoint, the person who gave you life, the person who's intended to protect you and guide you necessarily, but was teaching you everything not to be
1: right. You you mentioned in some of the things that I read, um, you talked about secrets. Um, I can only (laughs) imagine that being a young girl and having a mother addicted, there might be a little bit of shame there. I think I might be a little. Like, ashamed of not wanting people to know, was that? Oh, my God. Yeah.
0: Yes. I mean, shame is one of the biggest things that I carried. It literally is the thing that um, I let, made me shy away from so many people. And I was really embarrassed um, when people found out that she was my mom because I couldn't control the state in which she was in. And I felt like they were going to judge me based off of her state. And how she allowed herself to be in that position in the first place so i carried unbelievable shame hurt resentment pain and what um that shame started to lead you know to even more um, frustration further down the road as an adult because as a child it was somewhat understanding in the sense that when you see a parent or a person who's suffering from addiction my family used to explain it away as oh Kim, she's just sick. She's uh-huh. just sick. Yeah. Well to a child that means take her to the doctor, take right. her to a hospital. How do we fix this? But as I got older I realized that her you know, her appearance was telling me a very, very different story. So the shame that I carry from seeing her sleeping under the bridge, from seeing her walking through the projects as a homeless person who was skeletal in nature, in her body frame, who had missing teeth and scattered hair and dirty clothes, who looked like she just didn't have a person who cared about her in the world. But yet she chose her addiction over her family and over me, her child. And so the shame that I carried from her tumultuous state was too much for a child to bear. It was just too heavy of a load to carry. And it left me vile. And then um very, very bitter, very,
1: very bitter. I can imagine. Absolutely. Just a reminder that you are listening to the Addiction Podcast, point of no return. For further information on the podcast, you can go to our website, theaddictionpodcast dot com, or you can find us on our Facebook page by the same name or you can call us at 727 314 7080 or you can email us to theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com. For further information on Narcan on Suncoast, call 1 877 339 3324. That's 1 877 339 3324. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call one 833 918 zero 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 eight today and say the word podcast and get a 10% discount or go to newmaninterventions.com. That's N-E-W-M-A-N-I-N-T-E-R-V-E-N-T-I-O-N-S.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one hour consultation with Bobby.
2: So I have a question that, you know, who did you wind up choosing as your role model?
1: Wow,
0: that is an amazing question. So I had um, several people that were very instrumental. And the first person was my dad. My dad was absolutely um, the very best thing that could have happened to me Um, my dad and mom are from two completely different worlds and sometimes I often laugh and I'm joke and I'm like how did these two um, find each other just because of their educational backgrounds and their experiences but my dad was Um, the most amazing man. He was the protector, the provider, and he gave me opportunities that kids like me typically wouldn't have the ability to do. So I was this private school kid, uniform wearing, who lived in the hood by night, who went to a school with affluent white people by day. Wow! So it was a strangest um, set of dynamics. It was like living in oxymoron. Um, I had the best of both worlds, but that was because of my dad.
1: Wow. That's amazing. Another
0: really, uh, Oh, thank you so much. But another really good um, role model was my godmother, who has an extensive background in family um, therapy and she and my dad had become friends at work and it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that he thought that she would be a phenomenal resource for me for love and support and so because of her extensive background and family um, therapy she was able to help me understand what it was that I was dealing with how to foster my emotions and how to try and allow my mom's addiction to not get in the way of The dreams that I had for myself, even though I accomplished those goals and my mom was the driving force behind them, I carried for the rest of my life this emotional weight of not being able to
1: save her from herself. Right. Wow. You know, yeah, because you know, parents, Jason. You know, we talk to parents who think that it's it's like their fault. You know, the yeah. kid becomes addicted, mm-hmm. and and they and there's guilt there, and and here again, yeah. y- you know, you then you are in a position where you you would like to take care of your parents, shouldn't have to, but you're mm-hmm. kind of caught in that conundrum, if you will.
2: And also, it flips the other way too, where sometimes kids who are born from addicted parents sometimes feel the child feels like their parent is addicted because of them. Right. You know what I mean? Mm
0: -hmm. Right. Right. Yes. Yes. So for me, I'll I'll say this. I never had the feeling that I felt like my mom was addicted because of me. Because again, I was the second child. She had already had a child before. And by the time I was born, she was already a full-blown junkie. Right. So I didn't necessarily feel like I've, her addiction was because of me, but I will say that once she became pregnant a second time, carrying another life did not deter her from continuing in her deadly habit. Most women, when you get pregnant, have the maternal instinct to do what's best for their unborn child, myself included. When I got pregnant with my first child, I did everything in my power to make sure that I was digesting into my body everything that would I could that would make her healthy to give her the very best start. Right. But for my mom, that was not the case. Her pregnancy did not deter her addiction in in the least bit because she was already using. So from that aspect, I don't ever feel like I was the reason. And specifically, I'll tell you this. Um, A quick little story. I graduated um, from college. And about two days later, my mom was released from the Texas Department of Corrections. And this was her second time. Um, being released from jail after being sentenced to 29 years for the possession of crack cocaine. So with that being said, I picked her up from the Greyhound bus station, and um, I took her to my aunt's house where they were having a birthday party for my nephew, and this was going to be the first time she had ever met her nephew since he had been born. Well, in that ride to my aunt's house she and i started to talk and i started to just pick her brain about how she felt in in her sober state of mind because this was one of the very very rare times that i had ever had a conversation with her outside of her being high or living on the street so i asked her you know how she was doing and you know what were her plans for staying sober and you know and she just kept repeating to me Well, I just got to go to those meetings. I'm going to stay clean this time. You don't have to worry about that. I'm going to go to those meetings. So I wanted to believe her, you know, as most kids do. You want to have the hope and faith that she finally got it. She finally understood, you know, the gravity of what we were dealing with and that she was going to get it right. So seemingly out of absolutely nowhere, as we were driving down the street, um, she says to me, hey, the day you were born, the doctors came in the room and they asked me what drugs I had been using. She said, I didn't lie. I told them both heroin and cocaine. And at that moment, it was like I had a complete out-of-body experience thinking to myself, my God, this must be what it feels like for her to get high. Because I couldn't believe the words that were coming out of her mouth. Because we all knew that I had been born a dope baby. But to hear those words come from her mouth was particularly damaging. And so with that being said, because she admitted that to me, I realized that I was not necessarily the reason for her addiction, but I wasn't the reason why she
1: just ever decided to stop either.
2: Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, it becomes collateral damage from from the addict's own behavior.
1: Exactly. And so then, so you went to this private school and then from there you went to college. Where'd you go to college?
0: I graduated from Texas A&M University at Commerce um, with a Bachelor's of Business Administration. And now I'm currently enrolled as a graduate student at the University of Arkansas Monticello pursuing a Master
1: of Fine Arts in Creative Writing. Oh, wow. Now, did you meet your husband in college? Did I read that? I did. I
0: did. I met my husband in college. I did.
1: And did he play football in college?
0: He did. He played football in college, and I was just uh, a little freshman who was new to the whole college life. And uh, my dad had come down to one of the games, and my husband, who had happened to be one of the star defensive players, was having an amazing game. And my dad looked at me and he said, hey, who's that? Well, I've been on campus for like three months. I had no (laughs) idea who he was. So I told my dad, I don't know. And um, as fate would have it, I would meet him in the school cafeteria
1: about two weeks later. Ah, very cool. Very cool. Mm -hmm. Kim, what made you decide to tell this story? Well,
0: I decided to tell this story because what I know is that everything that we go through in life is not just for us but so that other people can heal from our scars. And what I wanted to do was shine a particular light on um, criminalizing drug use, rather than treating it as a mental illness that it really is, because what we do in society is that we criminalize drug use and then we put up all these barriers that allow reacclimation back into society almost impossible right and then when when addicts retreat back to addiction because it's the only thing they know how to do to cope then we say oh they're losers or oh they're they're not trying hard enough or you know whatever other you know excuse we want to put on it when really Um, From a societal standpoint, we put barriers in place that make it almost impossible to reacclimate. So part of what I wanted to do is when we talk about addiction, which you often do and on your show, you do so well, is that you focus on the addict themselves. We almost never dissect what the family of an addict goes through and particularly their children. So I wanted to tell this story from a child's perspective to shine a light on what it feels like to be the child of an addict and to be um, really in a position where um, I was living with a parent that I really never met because I knew so little about my mom because her addiction had completely taken over her life and um, it changed the chemical makeup of her brain that I couldn't even tell you her favorite color. Wow. And we, we never had conversations like that where we um, laughed about the do's and don'ts of life, the birds and the bees or whatever was happening at school. My conversations with her were very few and far in between and most of the time behind a glass window at the jail or the penitentiary.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Were you able to have any of those conversations with your sister? At all? Uh, What conversation? Like uh, birds and bees.
0: (laughs) I I was. I, I did have the birds and bees conversation with my sister. But like I said before, my godmother, who was very, very instrumental in my nurturing and in my upbringing, who was my role model, who I
1: spent a lot of time with, was the person who best took on that role. Yes. No, I I understand that. I guess I was just trying to, I was just wondering what the situation with your mother did, how that affected your relationship with your sister.
0: Well, um, it didn't really affect my relationship with my sister in a negative way. It did allow me to lean on her to sort of understand what she had been living with before I was even born Right. Um, and how she coped with it. Now, unfortunately for her, um, my sister didn't necessarily have um, the best coping mechanisms of of her own, and I won't necessarily dive into that for respect and privacy uh, for her. But with that being said, um, we normally do two things, right? We normally rise from it or we fall victim to it. Understood. And
1: so, right. right. Yeah, enough said enough said. Mm-hmm. So um, your your book? Um, yes. Your book is um, Dope Girl, and it's available on Amazon? Yes. Okay. And I yes. also saw on your website that you're available for, for public speaking, yes? Yes, yes, I'm available
0: for public speaking as well. Um, um, my book is also available on my website, kmathis.com. And um, you can see a lot, a little bit more about my story there. There's a few videos there. There's some background information on my foundation, my husband and I's foundation. Um, and we have an extensive arm of that called Roses for Rose, where my mom's name was Rose. So we raise funds for families affected by drug addiction, and we give back to the community with a host of um, initiatives whether it's providing counseling services or clothes and shoes, back-to-school items, or household items for families living with or recovering from addiction. But, yes, the book is available on Amazon, and it's
1: also available on com and I do um, take speaking engagements as well. And, and if someone um, was interested in possibly booking you for a speaking engagement, they could just do it through your website? They can reach you there?
0: Yes, there is a tab on my website. It's called Experience, and it will allow you to book me for speaking engagements. Or even if you're not interested in having a speaking engagement, but you host a small women's group or a prayer group or even a book club or just a group of friends that you want to get together to kind of love on, then I'm available for that as well. And you can book that through the website just when you click on it and you um in the information you sort of indicate what it is that you're hoping to do whether it's a book club a small group prayer group
1: conference workshop whatever awesome and if someone wanted to donate to um one of your organizations like roses for rose or um the kevin mathis foundation is that also all available on your website Yes, it is. So Roses for Rose is a program under the umbrella
0: of the Kevin Mathis Foundation. Okay. And that is also on my website, and it's called Roses for Rose. And there is a donate button at the bottom of um, that page, and it allows you to make a contribution. Um, Dope Girl Enterprises and Kevin Mathis Foundation is also in the process of giving away $1,000 scholarship to two girls in the Dallas-Fort Worth area um, who family members or friends have nominated them and have classified them as a dope girl. And what that is, is a girl who is excelling in the classroom, in 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 her community, in her church, or on and off the athletic field in the face of Um, life challenges. Right. So someone like me who was a student and a kid who was going to school with the shame and the secrets of living with my mom being an addict who was still trying to fulfill my educational responsibilities and live out my dreams at the same time, um, we're looking for for girls like that because what do you do, right, when you have to live with someone else's choices? Right. And so we want to
1: recognize those girls that are excelling. That's awesome. I love that. Thank you. So, Kim, just in wrapping up, if if there was one thing you could say to either kids who are in your position or parents dealing with kids who are addicts, what message would you want to give to them? Well, the message that I would give, to people who or
0: listeners out there who are either born into addiction or who are still suffering from addiction uh, is that, first of all, I get it. It's a very bitter and a hurtful place to be because you find yourself a victim, again, of someone else's moral choices, and it's categorically unfair. Um, and so I would encourage you to live your truth, do it afraid, and be dope. Because what I mean by that is that my sincere advice would be to pray and to allow yourself to feel the weight of what those choices are and then trust your intuition to handle them accordingly. Because you have to love yourself by setting boundaries on how much you can take, even if that means walking away, because your emotional health and your future depend on it. I have spent my entire life in recovery trying to regain a sense of normalcy from drugs that I never even digested into my body. And I used to carry the residue of my mom's addiction around with me everywhere. So I was angry at her continual decision to choose drugs over me and for the lack of love and her um, lack of parental responsibility and for also putting me in positions to have me defend her absence and for me to make excuses um, for her behavior. Right. and like I said before, all of that was a load that was too heavy for a child to bear. And so it manifested itself in very negative ways. But once I faced her addiction, um, as the poison that was keeping me sick, then and only then was I allowed to heal. And so I encourage people that were born, to addiction, born addicted, or who have a parent or someone you love that's suffering from addiction, is to really love yourself and set boundaries. But live your truth and your truth is your circumstances and to shed the shame and fear because once you live your truth you can do it afraid and be dope.
1: Yep yep Kim thank you so much for sharing your story on the podcast I really really appreciate it and it is a story that we haven't heard before we haven't we've talked about it but not as I say, we know the babies are born addicted, but now we have your story. And I really appreciate you sharing it with us. Well,
0: thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. I hope I was able to give the listeners a little bit more background on what it is to be the child of an addict. Because though we were not the drug users ourselves, that you don't have to be sick to be the drug user.
1: That's right. That's exactly right. Thank you so much. Thank you, uh,
0: uh, good luck with all the rest of your shows. I
1: appreciate the opportunity. Awesome. So that I thought that was an absolutely fascinating. Um, it's it, it's just a take on the whole addiction story, if you will, that we haven't had before. You know, um, it, obviously we've talked to your parents, right. and so your parents have the viewpoint of what it's like to have a child who's addicted. And we've also talked about people I don't think we've interviewed them, but you've talked about people who've come to you like grown ups and their grown up parent is an alcoholic or addicted. Right. But this is a child right. <laughs> that has it's, to try and understand this and deal with this. And I just I can't I just can't I can't, you can't quite wrap think your brain with it. around it. I, I can't.
2: It, well, yeah, I mean, it is an interesting viewpoint because it isn't something we've really discussed that much because we do talk to families of addicts. We do talk to addicts themselves, but very rarely we talk to someone who is born addicted to an addicted parent. And what, we, what I'd like our listeners to realize is that more kids, obviously, because the drug crisis are so, is so bad right now, more kids are, addict, are born addicted now than ever, ever, right. ever, ever, ever in history. Right. And what these babies go through in the NICU after they're born is just unreal and, because and the, they go through full blown withdrawals, especially if the parent was addicted to opioids
1: right and the and the point is that she made, which i thought was was very true is that it, it that isn't even the the whole story, no. just the withdrawal
2: that's just part that's because
1: the because then they've got you know a pair a mother who is an addict, and right. everything she said about you know your mother is i mean
2: it, your mom is your mom
1: here's your mom and that that's a special bond and a special relationship into mm-hmm to just not have that because your parent is addicted is just, uh, it's just, it's very sad.
2: And, but it's very real.
1: It's very, and it's very real. And I think that she's really done a great job of coming back from that. And, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I'm glad that she shared her story with us. Totally. And you know what, Jason, we got to keep talking. We got to keep doing this. And if, and if you can't come, I always explain that you're doing something super duper important, saving lives, lives, getting people (laughs) sober. And, uh, we'll keep, we'll keep,